0: There's a story I like to tell that my mom hates. It goes back to my parents' first few years in the United States. My dad, he immigrated to a suburb outside of Seattle in 1991. Less than a year later, my mom and my older sister left India to join him, and then I came into the picture not too long after. My dad worked full-time at a gas station, and my mom stayed at home to take care of us. One day, when my dad came home from work, he asked my mom what she did with us that day and she told him that she took us to the aquarium. When my dad asked her which aquarium, she told him it was the one in the back of the grocery store. As a lifelong vegetarian, my mom didn't realize that the live lobsters kept in tanks in the back of the grocery store were meant for eating.
1: I've done masters in business and I didn't came across this thing. That sounds so naive.
0: My mom was born and raised in Ahmedabad, It's a large city in the Indian state of Gujarat. She grew up in a world surrounded by other devout Hindus who practiced strict vegetarianism. That means no beef, no chicken, no seafood, no eggs. My parents raised my sister and I as vegetarians 8,000 miles away from Ahmedabad, in a world where to this day, vegetarianism is still not completely understood. My name is Parth Shah and you're listening to Hyphen, a podcast about living in two different worlds simultaneously. This episode is about decisions. You'll meet people who've chosen to live their life in ways that set them apart from the social norm. I live in Wisconsin. In 2015, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation presented Wisconsin with the honorable recognition of being the heaviest drinking state in the country. Alcohol is a big part of the culture here. So when I was at a bar a couple weekends ago and realized that my friend Hani had been drinking water all night, I was a little surprised.
2: The easiest way to say, to answer the question, why don't you drink,
0: is for religious reasons. Hani Mahmoud is 24 years old and has never tried alcohol. He grew up in Seattle, his dad is from Egypt, and his mom was born and raised in the States.
2: My dad is Muslim, and my mom is Jewish, so it's an interesting combination. Um, you know, people wonder how it works out, but, it you know, it does. And there was some agreement made before I was born that I, you know, I would be raised Muslim. So, I ne- I knew a little bit about Judaism, but I was never raised with it, um, and never never practicing. Now, whenever Jews hear that my mom is Jewish, they always say, "Oh, so you're Jewish?" Because Judaism passes through the mother. So technically, I am 100% Jewish. My dad raised me raised me Muslim, and and Islam passes through the father. So I'm just as much. Muslim and as, as I am Jewish.
0: Hani considers himself a moderately practicing Muslim. He tries to go to the mosque every week, and he doesn't eat pork. Growing up, Hani didn't know many Muslims outside of Sunday school. Despite that, he says he's mastered balancing his religious beliefs with his social life.
2: I have no problem going out with my friends on the weekends to, to bars, whereas most, most Muslims that I know, at least, would, if they don't drink, they also wouldn't really be seen around bars. Or, or they wouldn't surround themselves with other people that drink. Whereas I've always had American non-Muslim friends growing up. I actually never had Arab or Muslim friends um, growing up. I, I have plenty of fun, and I'm still able to keep my friendships and do everything that my friends do um, without drinking. And in fact, I can, I can usually go out more than my friends because I can go out, every every night of the week if I want to, and still go home and do my homework or do work and wake up the next morning and feel fine.
0: Hani says saying no to alcohol has never really been hard for him. He's never been, like, drowning in peer pressure, you know, trying to resist the urge to take a sip of liquor. But there's another vow that he finds much more challenging.
2: I also adhere to the no-sex-before-marriage tenet of, of Islam, so I guess you could call that a vow as well. And, you know, that one is, is also... Can, that one can be harder to to keep sometimes than the drinking vow. Both of my girlfriends in the past were just white Americans. M- my first girlfriend was in, I think it was junior year of high school. And with that relationship, there wasn't much, uh, you know, temptation uh, for for sex just because I think we were a bit young at the time. My, my second girlfriend, as I was graduating high school, moving into college, um, that was definitely more of an active, you know, I I'm not gonna have sex before marriage at least that's my ideology right now and she respected that and you know that's how we how we that's the understanding that we had um I actually haven't had a relationship since then so uh, be I'd be curious to see how the next one goes especially with a 20, 22 25 year old in a, in a relationship, uh, sex is is a big deal. So I think that that's you know a bridge that I'll have to cross when I when I get there.
0: Hani says his decision to be abstinent is way less rigid than his decision to not drink alcohol.
2: Here in America, if I'm dating in the American style and dating an American girl, for example, non non-Muslim, then you know I could see it it being an issue, and I could see that there would be a point when you know. In my mind, there might be this decision, well, I need to either have sex and move on with this relationship or get married so that I can have sex. That's not how I want to make the decision to get married. So that's when I could see myself reassessing that vow, like, okay, if this is the person that I am really serious about, then I wouldn't mind breaking that vow. Um, so that I could be more level-headed in my decision going forward about how to proceed with the relationship.
0: As Hani's gotten older, he says dating someone who's also Muslim and shares his vows has become more appealing. And he's getting help finding women that meet those criteria using an app called Minder.
2: So obviously a play on on Tinder, but Muslim Tinder. So, So it functions and looks just like Tinder, you know, the swipe right and swipe left. Um... The, like I said, the only difference is that it doesn't filter by location. So, you know, here's a girl from New York. There's a lot of people from New York and New Jersey on here. I generally don't bother talking to them because I don't have any plan to move to New York, and I don't want to make any girl move here for me um, because I wouldn't do that for, for them at this point in my life. So, um, yeah, but it, it looks just like Tinder. Of course, the demographic of people is very different. A lot, of, a lot of these girls in their, you know, in their about me will straight up say, you know, only serious inquiries like looking for marriage only. But then there's also there's also girls on here that are, you know, might align more with my ideologies that are willing to date in more of an American fashion.
0: Hani's made some pen pals, but hasn't met anyone off the app in person just yet. Talking to Hani made me realize that he is way more disciplined than most people I know our age. He stays true to his guns. But he doesn't see his decisions as that big of a deal.
2: I didn't make them as a vow that I would never break. I just made them as a, you know, a logical decision that aligned with my personal values. And I've kept them because I continue to assess them that way.
0: There's no way to look at Honey and know about the vows he's taken. They're invisible. Nicole Foster's decision, on the other hand, is way more noticeable. Hello? Hey, sorry, I don't think you'll be able to see. I went to undergrad with Nicole. We caught up over Skype a few days ago. She's Ugandan-American and was raised in Georgia. Like Hani, Nicole is Muslim. She dresses modestly. She wears clothing that covers her arms and legs. And she also wears a hijab, a headscarf. She started wearing it in the fifth grade when she transferred from public school to a private Islamic school.
3: And so a part of the the uniform at that institution was to wear the scarf. So that's when it kind of became a part of my daily routine, probably around fifth grade is donning the scarf. Um, But, you know, because you're still a kid, when you're playing outside, when you get home from school, I didn't necessarily wear it. And it became a conscious decision to wear the scarf outside of, you know, whatever the school setting, um, when I graduated and joined uh, my high school in ninth grade.
0: And and were you in the same Islamic school in ninth grade, too?
3: No, um, I left the Islamic school and then went back to public school. I remember my first day of high school I wore um, my scarf, of course and um, one of the I was walking to my uh, to my first class of my high school career and one of the art teachers basically stopped me and was like very belligerent and was like, do you have a note saying you can wear that thing on your head you know And you know I was just I was really taken aback and I was like, well, I didn't think I needed a note to kind of express who I am on a religious level, you know. She's kind of just simply reduced my choice to wear the scarf as a as a thing, as an it. So,
0: so tell me, what is your scarf to you?
3: Mm, that's a really good question. And I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, and so for me... The reason why I wear my scarf and what it means to me is that this is a level of obedience that I'm displaying for God because I believe as a Muslim woman um, this is something that I should be doing. Um, and, And more so, I think it's a move to demand and require that my voice and myself be seen for what it is, and not necessarily for, you know, the curves that I have on my body or, you know, the physical aesthetics that I may have.
0: A lot of Americans see the hijab as oppressive. There's an episode of The Daily Show from back in January where Dalia Magahed, Director of Research at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, explains to host Trevor Noah why so many Americans have this belief.
3: ...should be following their faith. I just want to ask you another question, though. I know you're the guy asking me. When you talk about oppression, when we talk about oppression, I think that the concept's really important and interesting because oppression means the taking away of someone's power, Yes. right? What hijab does is it basically privatizes women's sexuality. That's essentially what it does. So what are we saying when we say that by taking away or privatizing a woman's sexuality, we're oppressing her. What does that mean? What is that saying about the source of a woman's power? We're saying that a woman is only strong if she's sexy in public? Yeah! Yeah. Did I get it? Yes! 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 It it is an... um, A struggle sometimes, because it's almost like a conflict. Because what is considered beautiful isn't necessarily what women who wear the scarf are, you know, considered. For me, if I do happen to take it off, it would be for the wrong reasons. It would be for um, for people. To see me as attractive, or whatever the case is, and I know that that, at the end of the day, is not a value um, when it comes to how I want to live my life.
0: Nicole's hijab doesn't shield her from society's beauty standards.
3: For the longest time, I hated my hair. Even though I covered it, I hated my hair because it was curly and it was kinky and it didn't look like what I saw on TV. It didn't look like even like, um, you know, it was very tight curls. And it was something that a lot of black women struggle with. And I think what is not actually talked about um, is the intersection of how Muslim black women see their hair. I remember in high school, there would kind of be like these girls parties which, you know, little like, I don't know, t- teenage girls who wear the hijab would like get together in someone's house and close the windows and like have these like little dance parties. And of course, no one would be wearing their hijab or their scarf. And so I remember just like, you know, freaking out like, oh my God, how am I going to do my hair, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, I need to make sure that it's straight. I need to make sure that it's really, really straight. So it's, yeah, it's so interesting. Um, and I, I definitely know that other Black Muslim women have this the same, like, almost, uh, yeah, this, this complex. But I mean, I definitely can say now that I'm in a much better place in terms of my hair um, and my, my features. Wearing
0: the hijab is so much more than just putting on the headscarf. Nicole says the purpose of wearing it is to emulate modesty. In the way you look and in the way you interact with the world. And by putting on the scarf, she becomes part of a unique social network.
3: There is definitely a connection amongst women who wear the scarf um, to a large part. Uh, Even though, you know, for instance, like if. I happen to see another woman who wears his, the hijab in Walmart. You know, I'll, I'll go say hi to her. She'll go say hi to me. How are you? You know, I don't know who she is. She doesn't know. I've never seen her before. But it's, it's that level of connection. Um, it happens almost every time I see a, another Muslim woman in hijab. Or even if I see another hijabi on TV, I'll be like to myself, I'll be like, OK, get it, girl. OK, she better work, you know, um, because I think there is that level of a, a sort of level of a shared consciousness.
0: Part of that shared consciousness involves getting stared at. Unless you've been living under a rock, you've heard the anti-Muslim language that Republican presidential candidates Donald Trump and Ted Cruz have used in the past few months. And Nicole says it's made being a hijabi even harder than it already is.
3: I've really come to realize that my presence makes people uncomfortable. Um, You know, before, you know, people used to kind of stare and I used to just kind of brush it off, but now when I get those stares, um, it it really it's it's a different type of stare. It's a stare that really highlights the unease. That penetrates a person's core at times when they see somebody who looks like me, somebody who's tall, somebody who's brown, and in my case, black, um, somebody who has a scarf covering their face. And so it really bothered me. I'm like, oh my God, like I can't even walk through the mall anymore. Like, what is going on here? But you know what? I'm definitely taking this as an opportunity. Like, I'm I'm Nicole Foster. I'm not here to make you comfortable. If my appearance makes you uncomfortable, that is not on me. And I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, how I'm doing it. And you're not going to have any bearing on my life.
0: When my mom thinks back to her first few years in America, raising two kids as vegetarians, she can't help but laugh.
1: I have taken you guys to McDonald's when you guys were young and the toys that you really liked it. And <laughs> I remember I used to confuse those girls behind the counter, telling them, can you please make a cheeseburger without the patty, just bread and cheese, <laughs> and so I can get a toy for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so she will look at me that I'm crazy, that bun and, uh, like hamburger bun and cheese. I will say yes.
0: Going out to restaurants was not a common occurrence for my family when my older sister and I were growing up. Our diet was mostly homemade Gujarati food aside from the hundreds of PB&J sandwiches we brought to school with us for lunch.
1: I remember in in the beginning when Didi started school she took, she took Indian lunch and then she got tired of explaining everybody. Then she was for her it was always a vegetarian was the food. But then she told, uh, told me that don't give me Indian food. That I, uh, Most of the time I explain to them what is this. For me, growing up vegetarian was different than you guys growing up vegetarian. was different. That was my norm.
0: Finding vegetarian food was never hard. I mean, yeah, at a lot of restaurants I can only eat a veggie burger, but I've never been starving because I couldn't find food. The real challenge was dealing with the questions that come up when people find out you don't eat meat. I can't tell you how many times growing up, classmates and friends put me in unrealistic scenarios and asked me things like, if you were stranded on an island in the middle of nowhere with just a cow, would you eat the cow? Like, how how did that cow get there in the first place? How did I get there? And I wish I had a dollar for every time someone asked me where I got my protein from. I think the worst question is, how do you get your, where do you get your protein from? People in America are so obsessed with protein.
1: Because that's how they grew up, Yeah, They're not obsessed, but that's how they are. Uh, they've been told that's a good diet, uh, to be uh, having a high in protein, and their body needs more protein, and they always ate a protein-based diet. They're not obsessed, it's just that's the only way they know.
0: And for my family, being vegetarian is the only way we know. When I started brainstorming this episode, I kept using the word choice. Hani's choice to abstain from alcohol and sex. Nicole's choice to wear a hijab. My mother's choice to raise her children as vegetarians. But the more I think about it, the word choice doesn't seem right. When you've done something for so long, it's no longer a choice. Like the color of your eyes and the texture of your hair, it just becomes another part of who you are. Thanks for listening to Hyphen. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes. You can also listen to the podcast on SoundCloud at hyphenpodcast.com or through the NPR One app. All you have to do is search for Hyphen. Special thanks to my editor Maureen McCollum and to Hani Mahmoud, Nicole Foster, and my mom for sharing their stories. The music heard in this episode is produced by Poddington Bear, Kai Engel, and Vilea Vilea, and it's all licensed through Creative Commons. I'm loving all the feedback I've gotten from the first episode. Feel free to drop me a line at hyphenpodcasts at gmail.com. I'd love to hear what you think about the show. Be on the lookout for the next episode of Hyphen.